Thank you so much, Steve and musicians. It's been wonderful to be with you here today. Uh, I'm Mike. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And I'll be speaking on that passage. And as you can see, we have this table here. My son just said to me, he used to think there was a body underneath it. (laughs) There isn't, although metaphorically speaking, we are celebrating the body and blood of Christ. So uh, we'll be doing that after this sermon. Uh, We also have um, the Fusion group are staying in with us. Fusion, give us a wave. Come on, a bit more enthusiastic than that. There you are. Okay, sprinkled around. Great. So Fusion have got a wonderful worksheet, which Yian has put together. And I'm going to keep you guys on track with that. So let's uh, dive into Philippians chapter 1. Now, as Steve's mentioned, we're in a special season at the moment in the life of King's Church. It's called A Time to Build. It's a giving season. And the leadership team is inviting all of you who would think of King's Church as your spiritual home to take part in this season of giving. Now, several people have actually made a very good point, which is that our giving as Christians is not just financial. And that's a very good point. Uh, Our giving includes our time and our talents. Whatever gifts God has given you, spent, invested in Christian service, that's a great point. And as you've raised it, we hope to take that up at another time. But at the moment, we've got a a single focus on the financial needs. So we've set out this giving target, and these gift packs were given out four weeks ago. If you haven't got one, or you've lost yours, or the dog's eaten it, don't worry, I think we've still got a few more. And in that is a pledge envelope. And our target is to increase our monthly giving by £12,000 a month for next year. And that is a lot of money, isn't it? 12, 12 is 144. Uh, It's a lot of money, but there are over 350 adults in our church, plus kids. So under God, it is within reach. So next Sunday, we will return our pledge envelope, and we're going to make that offering as part of our gathered worship. We'll pass around baskets or something and and bring that in, in worship to God. And some people have raised another great question, actually, through, um, through the last few weeks. What happened to having an offering as part of gathered worship. And that point, too, has come before the the elders of the church for consideration. So I want to let you know we're listening. Watch this space. Now, we call this season a time to build because of a sense that the Lord has led King's Church, Chesington, through the pandemic and through a period of stabilization to a place where we can build. And this is not a new, big, hairy, audacious vision We are actually talking about building on foundations that have already been dug for many years. And we're thinking of three spheres to build on, growing, training, partnering. And today we're thinking about partnership. And that is our giving and our support of partners in church planting and mission work around the world and in this country. And it is a really special joy to have representatives from King's Church Mundal here today. So can we just welcome them, please? Thank you so much for making the journey, you guys, and uh, for honoring us with your presence. We prayed for you in your first gathering a couple of weeks ago, and we are praying for you since then. And I believe it's pronounced... Kirkan Mundal. Valkomna. That's the only Swedish I know. Apart from Abba and Ikea. 
Now, as we think about joy and partnering and partnerships of, of, in the gospel, there is no better place to turn than Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you've closed your Bible, turn that back, page 1178. There we have this letter. And Philippians is the champagne of the New Testament. It's the champagne. Paul loved all his churches equally, but there's, one, there's only one that he gives him this much joy. And it's this church in Philippi. It is the first European church plant, the very first. And it's fizzing with joy and celebration. Just listen to some of the things he says in verse, th- verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Just thinking about the Philippians puts a smile on his face and warms his heart. Verses 7 to 8, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Wow, what a thing for a pastor to say. I was recently talking to a coach. I have a coach who I see an hour every two weeks and he was getting me to think about things that unprompted came into my mind and the one thing that came into my mind unprompted was one word, Rosie. So I've got four sons and one daughter. And I love my sons, but I adore my daughter. She's off in Nottingham at university. A long way away. But she is still in my heart. Paul says to this church, uh, I have you in my heart. And later on in verse 25, we didn't read this, he says, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul wants to keep on living so that they can progress in the faith and experience joy in it. So this is all about joy. It's the champagne of the New Testament. And I want to tell you something that's really incredible. Fusion, are you still with me? Yes, one of them is. The writer, Paul, was in prison when he wrote this letter. That's why you've got a little picture there of someone in prison on your sheet. He's writing from prison. There are four prison letters in the New Testament. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and this one, Philippians. So imagine this. As he is sitting there in a cell with chains on him, he's writing a letter or dictating a letter, and he's waiting his trial. And he doesn't know what will come from that. He could even be killed. He could be executed. He's waiting. It's like it's, it's there over his head. And he's heard, and a man came to visit him in the prison cell called Epaphroditus. And this man is from Philippi, and he brings news, and he brings encouragement, he brings friendship, and he brings money. He brings a financial gift. This man had made the journey from another country to see Paul because he was in prison, to encourage him and to bring this gift from the church for his needs. Now, it is really astonishing to me how little there is in this letter about the prison experience. There's almost nothing. I'm pretty sure that if I was ever imprisoned in Wormwood Scrubs or in strange ways in Manchester or somewhere, and I wrote back to this church, I would be telling you all about the prison. You know, the food and the misery and what the friends were like and how I was bearing up, you know. But Paul, he just listened to him, what he says. Every time I remember you, I thank God. In all my, all my prayers, he's praying in prison. He's full of joy because they're in his heart. So how, I want to know how can we experience that kind of joy?
Don't you? I want to know how we can experience this kind of joy. Like champagne. It bubbles out. It revives. It exhilarates. Surely we'd like to know the answer. And here's the secret. We will enjoy, we'll experience this joy to the extent that we love the things Paul loves. We will experience this joy to the extent that we value the things that Paul values. By valuing the things that grip the heart and the imagination of this great man as he sits in a gloomy prison cell. And what are those things? He tells us he is delighted with King's Church Philippi because they are faithful in gospel partnership and because they are fruitful in godly progress. Fusion, you have a question too on your sheet. What is Paul happy and joyful about? He is happy because the people are faithful in partnership and fruitful in progress. Partnership and progress. So let's pop the cork on this champagne, shall we? Mind your eyes. Paul says in verse 3 to 5 that he always prays for them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel, the good news. When he thinks of them, a deep, contented warmth, happiness warms his soul, and it's because the Philippians have been faithful partners. They got the news, they heard the news somehow that he's in prison, and from another country they, they raise money, they send somebody, one of their guys, on a dangerous journey to bring it. And in the ancient world, prisoners usually were not given food by their captors. So you didn't get uh, a, a meals in prison. You had to provide your own food somehow. And therefore, if you had no friends, you had no food. So this is a serious situation. But Paul's deep joy is not just having the money now to buy food and other essentials. His deepest cause for joy is that they are partners in the gospel. Now this word for partnership in the original language is often translated fellowship in our Bibles. And if you have the New International Version, the, the version that um, King's Church has, they didn't use fellowship, they used partnership here. And I'm really glad because it was the word that was used when you went into business with somebody as a business partner that you joined in the enterprise. Now, one example of a successful company in Britain, and I'll say this for our Swedish friends, is a department store called John Lewis. John Lewis has been going for, I don't know, probably over 100 years, and it's very, still very popular, and it does, it's very successful, and it's all over the country. And in fact, a, a friend of mine recently messaged me saying that John Lewis things were available in Texas. So it's a very successful company, but the, one of the reasons for its success is that it is a partnership. What that means is, when you, you go to work for John Lewis and you get your employment contract, you're not just an employee. You are a partner in the business. You have a share of it. So the employees feel involved, invested. It's their company too. And that's one of the secrets of their success. People setting up a business need partners. They need people to invest, people who will put cash in, people who will shoulder the financial responsibilities alongside them, and people who will help share the load of running the company. And that's what is 
in view here. Paul says, you guys have been partners for me in the gospel business. Fusion, question three, what does partnering in the gospel mean and what could it look like for you? Listen to Mike and think about Sweden. So if you give a pound next week, Fusion, that will translate into a certain amount of Swedish krona. I don't know how many, but they will be used for, to help gospel growth there in Sweden. And that is why Paul is so joyful. The Philippians were faithful partners in the gospel business. They were consistent. It says in verse 5, from the first day until now. Whether Paul was in his prime, taking the gospel to new places, seeing churches planted, teaching with power and authority, or whether Paul was battered, shamed, weak, on the bench because of his imprisonment. Whatever the circumstances, these Philippian Christians were partners. They sent him money. They prayed for him. They reached out in friendship. They sent people. It was from the first day, the exciting honeymoon phase of the Christian life, until now, years later, the years of difficulty and challenge for Paul, they did not forget. How could they? They were partners. They're in it together. This partnership wasn't just talk. It cost them. They put their hands in their pockets. They knew that Paul couldn't live on thin air. He had to live, eat, get accommodation. He had to travel. They knew he wasn't uh, what we call in England a bludger. He made tents with his own hands. He had a trade. But still they sent him aid. And we know that they weren't a wealthy congregation. Partnership costs money and time and emotional energy. It has cost our Swedish friends time, money and emotional energy to come here today, this weekend. And the more I go on in the Christian life, the more I am suspecting that money shows where your heart really is. The really interesting thing about this is what excites Paul the prisoner. The thing that thrills him is that the faithful partnership of these Philippians is a sign that God is working in them. Look at verse 6. It's a kind of key verse for the letter. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is really at work in you, he says, because I know that because you're such a faithful partner. And if God begins a good work in you, he will finish it because our God is a completer finisher. He doesn't forget and leave things half finished. He doesn't procrastinate and go off and forget. He completes what he has started. So the fact that these Christians are faithful partners is solid evidence that God is saving them. And Paul has every confidence that once a person is saved, they are always saved forever and ever. Amen. Later, theologians have called this the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. One of the most precious teachings of the, uh, the Protestant Reformation was this view that once a person is called by Jesus Christ and Jesus gives them the grace to respond in faith and they repent and turn and are born again by the Spirit and they become a new person and they are saved by faith that Jesus will never, ever let them go. You cannot lose yourself 
and he will not lose you, friend. And this doctrine, this teaching has enormous emotional value for those of us who tend to doubt. For those of us who look inside and just think, I'm just so terrible. I feel like I never change. I'm just so tired of myself. I don't know if I'm a real Christian. Will I make it? I've sinned so badly. I feel such a failure. I wonder if God will reject me. I don't know if I'm the real deal. Some of us struggle with that. We are, by our nature, we're doubtful. Our faith is fragile. And all of us will, will feel like that at some time. I had a wonderful pastor when I was at university who used to say, when I'm ill, don't ask me if I'm a Christian. Because when you're ill, you, it's all, oh, you feel terrible about everything. There's enormous emotional value in this precious teaching, the perseverance of the saints. But my father said to me many years ago that this doctrine should be renamed. He said it should really be called the perseverance of the Savior. Because if saints don't persevere because of themselves, my goodness, how weak we are. But Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep. And I will not lose any one that the Father has given me. And he made a promise. And Jesus keeps it. Can he be trusted? The fact that these Philippian Christians were faithful as partners in the gospel business through thick and thin, they stood with Paul in prayer, in friendship, in generous financial support. Paul is thrilled for this reason. It's a sign that God is at work in them. He's full of joy. Can we value the kind of things Paul values? King's Church Chesington, don't we want to be that kind of partner? One of the great historical examples of such a person was a man called Andrew Fuller. He was a pastor in the 18th century, in the beginning of the 19th. And he was part of a little group of working class Baptist pastors who met in in the early 1790s, and they felt the call of God to reach beyond England to the nations, the lost nations around the world. They wanted to go beyond Europe. They wanted to send someone to India, which was a six-month sea voyage. Can you imagine? Six months. It took a year. If you sent a letter, it could take a year before you got the reply. They decided to form the first Protestant Missionary Society. It was called the Baptist Missionary Society. And this decision was taken in a little room that was 12 foot by 10. Imagine that room with 14 people crammed in there having this meeting. And they decided they would collect a startup fund. And someone had a snuff tin. They passed it around and people put in pledges. And they had 13 pounds, 2 shillings and 6 pence to reach the world. And one of them, John Ryland, wrote, wrote this. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be like a few men who were thinking about the importance of reaching into a deep mine which had never before been explored and we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, William Carey said, well, I will go down the mine if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, as it seemed to me, he took an oath from each one of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. 
That's what it's like for a cross-cultural missionary sometimes. I'm going into the, this darkness. I don't know what's waiting for me there. Will you hold the, the other end of the rope? And Andrew Fuller never let go. He served as the main promoter, fundraiser, letter writer, promote, uh, advocate of the society for uh, more than 20 years. He and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. Eight of them died in childbirth. He was a busy pastor, yet he traveled all around the UK speaking to raise support. He led on communications. He took the lead role in selecting new missionaries. He wrote to people on the field and people at home. He raised thousands of pounds to support those people in India, and he never let go of the rope. Died at the age of 61. One challenge to King's Church, Chesington, is to be this kind of partner for others in gospel work, that we won't let go of the rope. Our partners in this country, our cross-cultural partners in other countries, and especially today we're thinking about King's Church, Mundal. What does it look like to hold the rope? To, to talk to them, to, to send messages, to ask how they're doing, to visit, to pray for them, to remember them faithfully in our prayers, and to give to ensure that our finances support God's work. We're pledging nearly 20% of our budget next year to missions. Uh, and let me say, this is not new. This is a rich part of King's Church heritage. It was this dynamic that sent me and my wife to Theological College in 2005, and from there to Manchester, to a little church plant in 2009. And over 12 years, that church grew to over 200, by God's grace. And several years ago, we planted another church called Redeemer, Manchester, and that has now grown to nearly 50. They've had baptisms this year, and now they are talking about how they can plant. And meanwhile, back here, Emmanuel Church Epsom was planted, and that church is now established, well-founded, growing, maybe 100 people. And now King's Church, Merndal, is launching in Sweden. See how it's going on? All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. The Palmers have gone to Colchester. Nathan White has begun work in Stockwell Baptist. Speaking personally, we had been in our church in Manchester for about seven years, and we suddenly discovered a massive hole in the church budget. No one had seen it. We were heading for the rocks. We were really in a bad spot. We were nearly in our reserves, and we were not a big church. And one member from here, a man called Andy Wyatt, happened to call, call me and ask how we were getting on. And I shared it, and I wasn't thinking anything more than that. And then out of the blue, this church sent us a check in the post and a, a lovely letter. And it, meant, it made the world of difference to us because we, had, we weren't alone. And by God's grace, the situation was turned around and we grew again. That's partnership, friends. You've been doing it for years. Let's keep going. First calls for joy. They were faithful in gospel partnership. And the second calls for joy, and I'll be quicker on this, is they were fruitful in godly progress. This is Paul's prayer. Have a look back in your Bible at verses 9 to 11. This is my prayer. He says, I'm going to tell you what I pray for you. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may, able, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, when I read a prayer like that, I realize something. I don't normally pray like this. 
Uh, and I don't hear many other people praying like it either. So this is a great education for us in what to pray, isn't it? A beautiful example of what we can pray for here in Chesington. And you guys in Sweden, will you pray this for us? So that we're partnering in praying for one another to be like this, to grow like this. He prays for three things. Love, life, and loads of fruit. Love, wise love. Verse 9, I, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. When we hear the word love, I think we tend to think about emotions or affections. But, you know, love is kind of about feelings, sentiment. We tend to separate the head and the heart. But look how love is described here. Love that is abounding in knowledge and deep insight. This is the head and the heart joined together. Love is bound up in the Christian life with knowledge and insight. This love is more than what you learn in books. It's a deep insight into God and who he is and his world and his people. And it's a passionate love that is also clear thinking. And in this letter of the Philippians, love is usually concerned with looking out for the needs of other people, especially in the church family. And you can only do that if you know them and you think about their needs and then you have an insight into how you can love them. He prays that they will grow in love, wise love, and that then leads to lifestyle choices. Look at verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. It's that you're, this love, this, this growth will help us to make wise choices in the world that we live in. Now, the world of the first century was one where moral issues and ethical choices were often blurred and distorted. Life often looked like many, many shades of gray, not clear black and white. And that is our world too. We need wisdom and discernment to see clearly the best way to live, don't we? To sift good from evil, to make right choices. We need to grow in maturity, to tell the difference between good and evil and, and, and wise and foolish. And there are many things in our lives that aren't really sinful, but they're just not helpful. They're not healthy. They're not really... Um, helping us grow. The letter to the Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So there's plenty of stuff that hinders you in the Christian life that isn't even sin. It's just weighting you down and tripping you up. Throw it off, he says. Throw off everything that hinders you and sin and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Wise love, discerning life, and finally that leads to loads of fruit excuse me, fruit. Verse 10b says that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So if you grow in your love and you grow in your ability to make wise choices, a third thing will happen. Character transformation. Character transformation. But I am calling it loads of fruit because you can't think of a word to do with character transformation that begins with L. Maybe some of you will afterwards. Paul prays that these Philippian Christians will be pure in their lives, that blameless, filled with fruit. Pure means sincere, not pretending, genuine, not hidden motives, a person who's the same on the inside as the outside. Blameless means not, giving off not offensive, not giving offense. Someone who can't be blamed because of their conduct. 
If you knew what people were like at work or at home behind closed doors or in a conflict situation or under stress, would you say they are blameless, respectful, respectable? And righteousness has many levels of meaning, but here it means godly behavior. Believers are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But what the gospel does is make our lives match up to the life of Jesus Christ so that we are conformed to his likeness. He's talking about a beautiful, transformed character. And that prepares us for the final day. Paul is confident that these Philippian Christians will be proved genuine, not exposed as fake, because our God is a completer finisher. We're going to come to the table in a moment. And as we do, I want us to think about that Lord Jesus to whom we are being conformed as we grow in partnership and as we make godly progress. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the Lord we follow. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray that we will grow, really grow in our joy, in gospel partnership and make godly progress. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for the joy of this morning to be together, to see one another to sing, to hear other people's voices, to enjoy music, and now to celebrate your supper. Lord, you've been so good to us. Meet us here at the table, we pray. Amen.